Welcome to Junkyard Theory, folks. Tonight's guest is somebody uh, who is the president of film music and publishing at a little independent studio called Universal Pictures, very, very small studio. <laughs> he's he's uh, been in the industry for over 25 years and his credits include some of the biggest hits in history, both cinematically and musically. I'm so thrilled to have Mr. Mike Noblock on the show. Mike, are you Bowen? And glad, glad to have you on board, sir. Are you Bowen? Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Awesome, Mike. Uh, it's you know we, we we've tried to have you on, have you have you on the show for quite a while now, and you know stars have aligned. So I'm so uh, sorry if I've had to cancel and reschedule multiple times. I really apologize. Uh, no, 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 nothing to apologize for. It, it happens all the time, and we get, you know, everyone's busy, especially during this season. So Yes, but, yeah. uh, but uh, it's, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here now, so thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, Mike, I want to, you know, dive down into uh, <clears throat> what you do, but before that, talk to me a bit about, you know, uh, your origin story. How did you get into the business? Where did you come from? Sure. I come from a little place called New York. Um, I grew up, uh, excuse me <laughs> a second, I dropped something. There we go. I grew up in the, uh, the suburbs of New York. Um, and, uh, I, I was always into music and the performing arts and self-taught musician. And I played in bands and just assumed I'd be, you know, kind of a big rock star when I grew up, um, which, which didn't exactly pan out, but, um, um something bigger. Yeah, exactly. It worked out a little bit better. Um, <laughs> After, after, you know, growing up and going to high school in New York, I, I went to a school in the Midwest called Northwestern University, which is just outside Chicago and, and uh, started in the film program there and actually ended up being a theater major at that school and just kind of spoke to it. Just, I like putting on shows and I especially liked uh, and gravitated towards the intersection of, uh, of music and anything, you know, visual media, whether it's on stage, on screen, big screen, little screen or whatever. But you know, I, I grew up uh, in the dark ages before the internet. And so my <laughs> my my really kind of deep working knowledge of the entertainment entertainment industry was 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 really limited, you know, sort of we take for granted now that you can just kind of go online and search for anything about everything and, and learn a whole lot. But, you know, I it was a little bit, um, you know, access back then was different. You could read books and magazines and maybe you knew people or had family connections or, and you know, so I, I didn't have any connections, but, um, but I just, I knew that, you know, sort of there was something pulling me in that direction. And um, while I was still in college, actually had an opportunity to get a, a production assistant job on a film in Los Angeles, because a friend of mine got a job on the film and I went to Los Angeles for the first time and ended up, um, being a production assistant on that film. It was a movie called Father of the Bride in uh, 1991, a remake of that movie with uh, Steve Martin and uh, Martin Short and Diane Keaton and, uh, and Kimberly Williams. And, um, and that was, you know, sort of boot camp for me. I got to see everything. I got to see how the movie was shot and how the movie was edited and people who worked at the studio, you know, business executives and, and then, you know, technical people and creative people. And just what really kind of was enlightening for me was just this, this giant collective of people who all had very specialized tasks in the industry, even, you know, on the music side, which was, of course, one of the coolest parts for me to see how that got made. But there's a whole array of people making the music 
for the film. There's a composer, an orchestrator, an engineer, music editor. There's musicians, obviously. And then on the song side, there's songwriters and artists and, and creative people in the cutting room cutting songs to picture. And it's just all of that was like, it was just so amazing and enlightening for me. And I got to go to the recording sessions for the score with Alan Silvestri, who's one of the greatest composers still to this day and world-class orchestra. And it was just such an aha moment for me of just seeing that in action and being like, I gotta be around this as much as possible. Um, and, you know, it was just almost like I, you know, I spoke with somebody unlocked a language in my brain that I didn't know that I spoke. It was just all the things that I'd been into as I was growing up and just the combination of all of that and seeing the professional application of it in a way that was just so exhilarating and exciting and just so kind of purposeful for me. And just, you know, that was, that was where I wanted to end up. And I just, I was able to um, identify that as the destination of where I wanted to end up to, you know, in that world of making music for, for films. And um, I finished school, came right back to LA and continued working for those filmmakers. And from there, I just kind of took a series of jobs until uh, I was able to get an opportunity to uh, to get a job in the music department at 20th Century Fox. And that's really where I kind of grew up professionally and cut my teeth and worked with amazing people. And, um, you know, and I, I, I learned a whole lot and just kind of worked on all different kinds of movies and, um, you know, and, and no two projects were the same. And I, you know, and I built my skills and I built my network and um, I ended up being at Fox for a long time. I was at Fox for almost 14 years. Um, one of the first movies I got to work on was Titanic. And one of the last ones I worked on there was Avatar. And so those are cool bookends for my tenure <laughs> at Fox, but all kinds of cool movies in between. And then almost exactly next month will, next month, uh, will be exactly, uh, 12 years ago. Um, I got the opportunity to come here to universal and, and run the music department here. And, uh, and that's where I still am. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I genuinely love it and still am as excited and as passionate about it as uh, that first time that I got to see Alan Silvestri and an orchestra in the studio on that first project. That's my entire wow. story. Thanks for having me. I guess we're done. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> don't, don't go just yet because I got so many more questions for you. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, uh, that's so inspiring. You, you know, you, you literally made your way across the country from New York to L.A., at the same time, you know, uh, climbing up the ladder little by little. And you today you are Grammy Award nominated as well. Yes. So, oh, man, uh, I, I want to I know. So whenever, whenever you guys, you know, uh, put music into a film, put soundtracks into a movie, what's the process like? Where do you start from? Is it sure. always dictated by the picture? Or do you guys like work uh, before something's shot as well? We definitely work before something is shot. And yes, the needs of the project musically are dictated by the picture, but it even, it starts before that. It starts with the script, or even if there isn't even a script, it might start with a creative kind of meeting of people sitting around a table talking about kind of the goals and objectives and ambitions for a project. And, um, you know, but certainly by the time you have a script in your hands, there's a whole lot you can do to start the music making process for, for a film. Um, and it's a lot about kind of, getting in early and often and communicating and collaborating with um, all the key people. It's a sort of, again, it's a collective of people 
um, who all have key positions around the table. So you have a, a director, you have film producers, you have executives at a you know a production company, or we're we're, we're a production company and a distributor, and um, and a lot of other things in house. And um, but we're also a big partner in working with our filmmakers and in helping them realize and, and achieve their vision of uh, or a shared vision uh, of of a version of a film to put up on the screen. And music obviously has a a lot to do with that. And depending on the kind of movie, um, we might start uh, one way or another um, because the requirements of the film are obviously different musically if it's a breakout into song musical or a, a, a comedy with a lot of you know songs and uh, soundtrack driven type of style, you know, where we're gonna use existing songs, we're gonna make songs, um, or it could just be another genre or type of movie, like a, a, a dramatic period movie, where really the most critical thing is to hire the right composer and create a, a, a fantastic underscore uh, for the film. Maybe it's not particularly song driven and you know, there's no car radio or you know, montages scored by a pop song or, or things like that. And we just, you know, it, it's all about the composer and the score, but you know, just as critical as mu any other kind of music in a film. So, you know, the cool thing about being here at Universal is part of you know the the, the culture of this company is we have such a, a diverse portfolio of all kinds of movies and you know movies of all shapes and sizes and you know so we have low budget all and, and tentpole tentpole high budget movies we have franchises like Fast and Furious and Jurassic World um, and then um, you know we also have um, you know a specialty. Uh, horror and thriller division with Blumhouse and we work with our partners at Working Title in the UK and Focus Features here on the lot in in Los Angeles um, and then the main division of the company makes you know some of what I mentioned you know R-rated raunchy comedies tentpole films uh, specialty films um, you know just a whole range of things and and what's cool about this company as well is there's really um, a passion and ambition for musicals and music-driven projects here. So we've made traditional musicals like uh, like Les Mis. We have you know innovative jukebox musicals like Mamma Mia, um, biopics like Straight Out of Compton. Um, we're getting started very soon, or already basically have gotten started on uh, the Wicked film that we're going to make starting this year. Um, we have other biopics uh, in the works. Uh, you know, we did uh, a decade and change ago, we did a, a James Brown biopic called Get On Up with Chadwick Boseman, the late Chaz Chadwick Boseman that, that I thought was, you know, a really special movie. And um, we have the Pitch Perfect series, which is obviously one type of music driven film. We made the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, which was a very soundtrack driven film. Um, obviously very different than Pitch Perfect, which is a breakout into, you know, they're singing a lot of cover songs, Fifty Shades of Grey, just the movie is propelled by a soundtrack of mostly songs that we made and some songs that we use, you know, existing songs that we cut in or cover songs and so on. And so the, the requirements, as I'm rattling off titles of movies, you, as you can imagine, the requirements of each of those films and the process to make them and and how to put something great up on the screen, um, it, it can vary, but there's just a sort of common theme throughout all of them, just about, you know, uh, open lines of communication and collaboration and getting in early and often and working closely um, with the with 
the, the key critical and, and production people around the table. And the last thing I'll mention is we also have two animation studios. So we have Illumination Films that does the Despicable Me movies, Secret Life of Pets. We just put out the second Sing movie, which is another very, very uh, special one to us. And then we also have DreamWorks Animation um, uh, that we did the, um, the last Trolls film, Trolls World Tour with Justin Timberlake and Anna Kendrick and, and the rest of that crew. And we put out a movie last year called uh, Spirit and we're working on a Puss in Boots reboot. And we just finished a film that's coming out this year called The Bad Guys based on a very successful uh, children's book series. So um, the process for animation takes a lot longer and, you know, but similar to, to any other kind of live action or any other kind of movie, um, you know, we wanna put the best possible music up on the screen along with, you know, what's right, you know, for the, for the creative vision of the film. So uh, it's a long, long-winded answer to your question, but uh, I think it's always better. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. So the, you know, the process of making a movie, like you said, with pre-production, you start off uh, even before the movie is shot. And, uh, you know, when you actually come into post-production, sometimes years have passed. And how do you try, try to, uh, you know, uh, think, uh, in advance and like predict like what this uh, what trends would be uh popular around that time and then you know pick the the particular artists that you need the type of genre for the music how do you make that decision is it something that's uh uh you know uh decided through uh mathematic statistics or is it more of a gut feeling i mean if i had to um pick one or the other probably more the latter of you know kind of a, a, a gut instinct we don't really spend a whole lot of time on kind of mathematical you know kind of metrics and algorithms um you know you, you generally if, if you if we sat down you and i sat down right now together to make the list of like the biggest recording artists in the world we'd probably you know it's a short list and we you know it's it, we, we would it would be kind of very or if we did it separately we'd have a very similar list to to one another in terms of you know just what's topping the charts and what's commercially successful around the world sometimes that that may or may not be the criteria we're, we're looking for um you know again it, it, we need to serve the film but um, sometimes we have an opportunity to work with emerging talent. I mean, when, um, you know, when we worked with The Weeknd on the first Fifty Shades movie, you know, he was just, we, we saw an artist um, who was just about to break. And it was just kind of, it, it seemed clear to us that, you know, this guy was a phenomenally talented artist and we made this really cool song for the film. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with kind of serendipitous cosmic factors and right place right time timing has a lot to do with it um so you know we're a and r people in terms of trying to spot you know um being ahead of the curve and trying to spot uh future hits and future hit artists um and sometimes we want to collaborate with artists that are already big names and a big commercial draw and we can add marquee value to the film sometimes we're doing like i said we're doing cover songs or sometimes we're making original songs but all of that is very much of kind of a vibey instinctive gut check sort of things more than it is mathematical or scientific or you know stats based right um you know i i always say that like um you know, you have one shot. It's like if the goal is to really, you know, 
do something big and commercial. I always talk about like, you know, if you, if I could go over to the executive building and burst into a meeting and process in a giant conference room in the marketing department or the production department or, and they, you know, guess who we got to do the song for this movie, you know, and everybody goes, who you want to say a name or a group name. And then that like, that's a mic drop and you walk out of the room and everybody goes, Oh my God, that's amazing. If you have to say who it is and then explain it, Right. Like, oh, no, you remember that guy or, or that woman had a hit and like you'd recognize the song if you heard it or you don't know them yet. Or, you know, then, you know, it's like once you have to start explaining it, maybe that's not. But, you know, but it's not always about that, you know, kind of holy crap, you know, kind of like um, trying to knock people out commercially, maybe from a marketing perspective. Um, we want that. And other times. You know, it might just be this is a spot in the film that just needs something, you know, gorgeous sounding. And it may or may not be about the name brand value of the artist, but just something um, that's high integrity and and, you know, and right for the picture. I mean, we want everything to do to be a, a, a way above a threshold of integrity. We hold ourselves to a very high standard. So we want, well, you know, all the music that we have a hand in delivering to every film we want all the music to be fantastic and successful. And you can use different metrics to gauge what that means. Um, but again, it always has to be framed for, framed by what's right for this picture, right? If we're, if we're putting music up on the screen that's kind of like distracting or kind of sitting in between the screen and the audience, you know, instead of like supporting the picture, then maybe, you know, things are disproportionately out of whack. And so um, you definitely have like uh, a sandbox within which the artists also have to play by, right? Like, I mean, like there are certain requirements for the lyrics and all of that dictated by the. the sure. If we're going to engage songwriters, producers or artists and, and, and try to create something original uh, for any kind of movie, um, we want to set those artists up for success. You know, we want to, um, we, we will show them the movie or the sequence that they're writing for, whatever is available. We can, we can send them the script or the pages of the script. They can talk to the director. They can talk to us. We'll give them a creative brief and we can use references for themes and, or even kind of the kinds of lyrics. What is, what should this song be about? What are we trying to accomplish? tempo, mood, style, genre, all of the things that we can do uh, when, when commissioning an artist to set them up for success. So that by the time they go into the studio, cut a song and come back and go, look what we made per your creative brief. If we've done our jobs right, they're gonna come back with something that's just gonna work brilliantly, right? If we're vague about it or like, hey, we don't really know what we want, but like maybe make something good you know, it's sort of like the, the, the odds are not going to be in your favor. Got you, 100%. And I mean, like you mentioned before, you guys have some franchises which are you know, massive global hits and the music not, uh, ha you know, it just doesn't have to resonate with an American audience, it has to resonate with a global audience and music on the whole does that. And uh, Sri Lanka loves you for the fact that you got one of our boys, Ruanga, on the Fast uh, franchise. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, uh, seeing where the franchise has come up until now, it's amazing to see what you guys have done in terms of the music as well, where you incorporate artists from not just uh, the States, from 
all over the world and uh, how do you identify that and how does that kind of uh, sit with you know uh, the, the various cultures because the past uh, franchise is a culturally diverse franchise in by, by itself sure sure well with fast and furious in particular and we talk about you know when we put artists on songs for the soundtrack of a fast and furious movie even whether it's you know writers producers but especially artists with that franchise in particular it's almost like auxiliary casting you know it's sort of there is there is a very specific sense of like who fits and who doesn't right so i love that it, term auxiliary casting yeah and so you know and i'm not going to start naming artists you know that like you know it's not about like throwing shade at, at a particular artist but if we put someone on a song in a fast and furious movie that just wasn't right like we know who the audience is we we know what the dna of that movie is and you know so in the past and you know having used artists like you know Wiz khalifa and you know two chains asap rock i mean there's just like i could go on and on there's just so many artists to name um you know it's there's there's rap there's hip-hop there's a lot of latin music there's you know for, it has to do with the story and where are we in the world because the fast and furious movies go all over the world but just who, what what group of artists can we curate that will sit alongside the cast of the movie serve the story serve what's on the screen the location the setting um and also just kind of like you said earlier, gut check and just kind of feel like this this could feel like a Fast and Furious song, right? And it it's a lot of trial and error, and it's um you know and it's um it's a process. It's a process, and we have there's a great team behind the music on the film. It's always a team effort, right? And um uh you know it we. We're a, we're a global media company. You know, we don't just make movies that we want to be successful in the States. And some movies more than others are the ones that we expect to really travel, travel around the world. Um, you know, and it's it all, all and, and it's different with every title, you know, animated movies, for example, they can be regionalized. They, almost, they get recast and redubbed um, in different territories. And sometimes we use the, the music regionally um, to... Um, to help movies feel more local, and other times we are like region-specific tracks. Yeah, we might we might work with our uh, marketing and distribution team in one territory or another um, because they might have something that's going to work meaningfully in you know um, in their territory for the campaign of the movie. Um, and I we don't sit here in the states and presume to know better than anyone what's right in every part of the world. So. I try to be very deferential to if we're trying to do something in um, Sweden or you know Japan or Russia uh, or Spain or France. I I, I don't you know I, I don't uh, have experience living. I, I don't have experience living in those places, and I don't speak those languages. And I I, I can bet you in those places that the same kinds of artists um, are topping the commercial pop charts, but there's also a music scene that's more meaningful locally than it may be globally. And so with animated movies, especially, um, we, we may work uh, to regionalize films. Um, but with all of our movies, um, whether it's classic songs or new songs, we, we want to work with um, 
music that we believe will not only serve the movie, but if the goal is to be commercially relevant, music that will uh, work outside the States uh, as well. But again, it varies from, uh, from, from title to title. Got you. Talk, speaking of uh, animation, animation movies, uh, talk to me a bit about how the song uh, Happy came about. Sure, sure. I mean, we were on the second Despicable Me movie. And the first one was a hit and Pharrell uh, was part of the music team from the inception of the franchise, um, which uh, with a composer uh, who was doing the underscore named Hator Pereira and um, who was part of Hans Zimmer's team. And um, Pharrell, we just the, there was a template created early on with that franchise that there were moments in those movies where sequences were scored by Pharrell's songs, Pharrell's brand of music and, and with him as an artist and a performer as well. And um, for the second movie, you know, there was a storyline that the, the, the protagonist of the movie is also kind of the antagonist of the movie. He grew, this is this super villain is cranky curmudgeon -y guy. Um, uh, he has a crush on a girl and he's uncharacteristically happy. And there's a sequence where he wakes up happy. I mean, it's a, in hindsight, it sounds like the most obvious thing, right? He's a guy wakes up and instead of just being cranky and, you know, sort of his usual super villain self, he makes breakfast for the, you know, the girls that he's adopted. And then it's just a sequence of him. He's walking down the street and he's walking through the park. And honestly, if you were describing it to anyone, you would say, it's just, we need a song for this sequence about a guy being happy. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes you, you use a temp song, you borrow a song and put it in just as a placeholder to get the vibe and the, the mood right. Um, but we knew we weren't gonna go with, you know, what we call a needle drop. We weren't gonna just use some existing pop song. It was very, that sequence was very much designed for Pharrell, as real estate in the film for a Pharrell song. Um, and the filmmakers, you know, uh, uh, and the team, you know, we would talk to Pharrell and kind of we'd show him the sequence and describe what we need. And and that one, you know, was, you know, it's 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 great to look back and kind of smile about it. But it was really tough. It was a it was a series of trial and error. You know, Pharrell would send a song or, you know, a groove or a track and, and say, how about this? And it would everything would be earnestly considered and genuinely tried and to picture. And sometimes it's too fast or too slow, wasn't the right vibe or wasn't upbeat enough. And, um, and you know, uh, we work to deadlines and, you know, sometimes there's just a ticking clock and the clock gets, starts ticking louder and louder because if we don't have the song by, you know, we're back, we're working backwards from a release date, but the whole lot of things have to happen at key milestones on a schedule along the way to get to where you're going to end up. But if we, you know, if we're getting, if we're starting to uncomfortably kind of feel like we're up against it, the stakes start getting higher and the pressure starts getting more intense. And, um, you know, Pharrell would be the first one to say he had to like try over and over and over. And then it was getting frustrating, right? It was sort of like, oh no, we're running out of time. And Pharrell's like, didn't, you know, just, it goes from being like a fun process to like, this is just getting tense. And, um, you know, to his credit, you know, it was just, we would just talk about it over and over. Like, what does this need to be? What does it need to sound like? What are the lyrical themes? Like I just described to you, which again, in hindsight, it kind of seems obvious that it would be a song called Happy. But he, I know he went back into the studio 
and just started from a clean slate, right? Just got into a headspace of like, forget about what I've tried and what I've done to date. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna erase the the whiteboard, clean slate, focus, dig deep. And he he came back like literally in the 11th hour when it was just starting to get really uncomfortable. And we were starting to think about what are we going to do? What are we going to do if he doesn't show up with the song? Or maybe we will have to pivot and use, you know, there, there are needle drops that you hear in movies and TV commercials and TV shows all the time about, you know, it's like if I started naming songs, you know, somebody walking down the street being happy, you might use the song Walking on Sunshine. Like everybody knows that song. You hear a split second of it and it just tells your brain th this is upbeat, feel good, happy. And, you know, so we started not that we would have used that song, but we started thinking about like, what are we going to do? And thankfully, Pharrell came back um, with this song, Happy. And it wasn't an instantaneous like, oh, my God, this is going to become a cultural phenomenon. It was like all right, this is the one so far that really sounds like it could work. And it was just kind of like, all right, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but this one feels good. This one feels right. Let's send it over to the cutting room and have them put it up to picture and try to dial it in, fine tune it. And, um, and then there was a little bit of back and forth for, you know, kind of notes and adjustments on the song. And it, it just ended up working. Um, as you know, the rest is history. It ended up working really nicely in the picture. And then, you know, outside the movie there's a whole other thing we try to achieve which is we want to you know we want to have a hit song we want to you know the, the the brass ring is you want to have if you go way back to like why do soundtracks exist why do we even do this in the first place there is a kind of what we consider now to be an old school logic of you want to make a song for a movie and have that song come out and get on the radio, make a music video. And, and that song's going to be a hit before the movie opens so that the, by, by the time the movie comes out, people go, oh, it's that song from that movie. And that song makes me want to go see the movie. And then when the song comes up in the movie, it's my favorite song that's been a hit for the. That's really, really hard to do. We have done it, you know, we've done it with uh, The Weeknd, with Ellie Goulding on the first Fifty Shades movie and, um, you know, and, and, and other movies, you know, Anna Kendrick and that cup song, Appalachian, oh, yeah. you know, folk, folk tune turned into a pop song, you know, with the first Pitch Perfect movie. But um, it's really hard. It, it, the, how you make a song a hit and how you open a movie are two different processes and they're you know, two different agendas and things that don't always line up and synchronize well, you know, and sometimes you're finishing a movie right up against your deadlines. And it might take a record label or a music company it might take a year, year and a half of working a song to have it be a hit. It, you know, we don't finish movies a year and a half before they come out. So sometimes you get lucky and sometimes, you know, it's it's sometimes you don't. With Happy, it was interesting because the movie opened in that summer and um, the movie was a hit. It was a great, you know, hit of the summer. And it, it was commercially successful. It was artistically successful. The songs that Pharrell made for all the songs, not just Happy, uh, that, that Pharrell made for the film were fantastic and a great part of the experience of the film um, and the rest of the music in the film as well. The score by Hector Pereira. But then it was just the movie came and went. And um, I think the home video window of the movie after the theatrical uh, release of the film came and went. And there was just still that song kind of just felt like it was still going. It just felt like there was still a lot of gas in the tank uh, left with that song. And we, you know, Pharrell was uh, signed at Columbia Records. And uh, we talked to Columbia Records who felt like 
they could put some muscle behind it, uh, more muscle than had been put uh, into it to date at that point. And, you know, it went from the movie coming out at the top of the summer into early fall. And, you know, we just put resources behind the film and, you know, the song just kind of grew and grew um, and, uh, and, and became a hit, became a hit after the movie was a hit. Um, but it's still kind of, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's no less satisfying, right. Than, than if it had, oh, if the song had come out before it's, you know, it's different these days than it used to be. And I can prove that by telling you like, when's the, or asking you, when's the last time you heard a song on the radio and thought, I got to go see that movie because of this song. Right. I can tell you that decades, years, decades ago, that was a thing, right. You know, if, uh, Will Smith made the song Men in Black and made a really cool million dollar music video that was airing nonstop, almost like an advertisement for the film on MTV. And, you know, it's there was a kind of a rhythm to the campaign of a, of a movie where you would genuinely um, drive audiences awareness to a film by using a, a, a hit song made in advance of the film's release as 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 a tool. Um, it's harder to do that now. I don't think, you know, consumer habits and trends in the consumption of music have changed in a way that I don't know that it works exactly like that. Um, but um, sometimes it does. And sometimes it, it's, you know, you don't necessarily apply the same methodology to every kind of film. You might say, well, for this film, we're going to go for a version of that, you know? Um, and, you know, so songs from movies can be hits for different reasons. They can be hits at different times relative to the release of a campaign. And all of that has, I mean, there's all kinds of factors I'm not even mentioning when a, an artist does a song for the film, you know, uh, timing has so much to do with it. If an artist is between records or maybe they're more on cycle and how are we going to work with that artist and their record label and their agenda with that artist, which may be different than our agenda, with the movie and the timing and to synchronize all that, you know, so it's like, if there's like the, if we're working with a big artist and there's the artist agenda and the movie agenda, they might, there might just be a little, if there's two circles, there just might be a little sliver where those circles overlap. And that's the space that, you know, that, that we want to be in. But sometimes those circles can be completely separate and sometimes they can be much more aligned. And so it varies and the, the methodology varies and the results vary. But we always kind of, you know, want to do kind of blue sky, big swing, you know, take a big swing and 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 really, you know, try to maximize what we can do with music. And, and from for those kinds of movies, um, you know, we want to we want to really deliver uh, and over deliver as much as possible with the music and the, the, the value, the artistic value of it in the film, the commercial value of the music supporting the film and even the commercial value of the music as a standalone product. We want all of that to be like kind of top, you know, first top shelf, first rate. Got you. That's crazy. Amazing. And uh, do, you, do you ever feel like you are the middleman between two entirely separate industries and having to balance them on board? It's kind of like juggling with, you know, one leg up in the air. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I get to, you know, in, in this role, you wear a lot of different hats, right? And mm -hmm. sometimes your problem solver or your um, 
a referee, you know, if there's conflict, you know, kind of trying to find a path to a mutually beneficial resolution of a situation. Talk um, to me a bit about that because it's a people business and um, sure. much of it can be ego driven, but at the end of the day, you got to get uh, the product, you know, out there and you got to make sure that's at the best, like top shelf, like you said. So managing people must be like one of the biggest challenges. I sure, guess. working, there's just a, there's a, there's, I think there are ways to work with artists that are, you know, better than others. Right. And, and, um, you know, there's no handbook, um, but, um, on, you know, on how to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that just kind of comes with the job that sometimes maybe hopefully not that often, but there's conflict resolution or, you know, it could be about money. It could be about timing. It could be about an artist thought they liked something and then changed their mind, but we didn't change our mind, but they, you know, and so there's, inf I mean, I can't even latch on to one example because there's infinite examples of things. I mean, it, because if there weren't, it would just be this utopian thing where everything just went perfectly and it was always, you know, you know, it's just sunshine and roses, which um, once in a while, you, you know, you get one that feels easier than others. But um, there's always I mean, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. There's just always challenges. Right. And to get everyone to the same destination. And, you know, another thing that we, you know, kind of say pretty frequently in our corner of the business is, you know, to be respectful to our filmmakers and to the vast collective of people behind any given project. Um, sometimes a movie doesn't end up being as great as you wanted it to be, right? Or it doesn't do as well at the box office or on a streaming service. Um, and the thing about that is like, nobody sets out to make a bad movie, right? Everyone wants their move, their project to be great. Everybody wants to deliver something that's going to be successful, whatever the metric for success is. And so, you know, if everybody's firing on all cylinders, sometimes you make a great movie and it just doesn't work. Or sometimes things don't go the way they're supposed to and the movie doesn't really turn out the way it's supposed to. Um, you know, so uh, I like where I sit in that process because we, like I said, we have this diverse portfolio of all different kinds of movies and, you know, I get to work on um, a lot of different things at any given time. Right. Um, but there are also artists and technicians and business people and craftspeople and talent. They'll, they'll commit to, one movie and that's all they're going to do from beginning to for the whole run of show they're in it for the long haul and so you got to respect people's kind of dedication and passion because they're showing up to do great work right they want to be part of something that's they want to be on a winning team right they want to be uh, you know they want to deliver something that's going to succeed so hopefully more often than not that's the case right but sure you run into you know bumps in the road and pitfalls and you know, challenges and conflicts and, and issues and problems to solve. And, you know, it's just, it's par for the course. Got you. And, uh, you know, have, dealing with all of these challenges and problem, problem solving, what, what skills from like different other walks of life do you think have kind of uh, come to the rescue? I mean, I it's, a weird, it's a weird, weird question, but I think being a parent helps. I like, you know, <laughs> Learn a, you learn a lot about like patience um, mm -hmm. uh, from 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 being a parent, but um, you know I just think you pick up um, experience along the way. Um, 
and you learn how to be collaborative and um, egoless and how to set people up for success um, and being a good communicator. Um, and, you know, it's just there are they're skills that you hone over time that, you know, that have to do with personal maturity, professional maturity. And, you know, I, I, I'm the first to admit that I think I'm better at all of that than I used to be. And I'm also like, I'm, I'm not perfect. And so I'm always striving to be better. But, um, you know, there's a romantic notion of like for people who do what we do that we're just sitting around listening to music going like, put this song in that movie. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that's a, there is a creative component to like, um, you know, that that fun side of things. Um, but just because I have a business card that says, uh, you know, I'm a, you know, ranking music person, it doesn't mean I get to unilaterally dictate or decide. And so sometimes you, you have to work with a, a, a panel of decision makers or you have to identify who's the ultimate tiebreaker decision maker, um, you know, and so there's for me and where I sit, there's the creative component of the job, but there's, it's also a whole lot of like, if somebody, if you got to just kind of sit in my office and watch me work, you know, you know, watch me staring at a computer screen and doing emails a lot of the time and phone calls and business stuff and deal making. And, you know, it's, um, it's a multifaceted, um, job that's not maybe as kind of sexy and glamorous as, uh, as just only living in that, you know, kind of creative, uh, portion of of the job but the creative stuff is fun too and the and the other and the rest of it is is really fun you know it's like for me the big secret is on this lot i have a lot of counterparts and everybody's passionate about what they do and great at what they do and there's people who are specialists in post-production and visual production and you know the the technical production folks and the creative production folks and then you widen out to marketing and publicity and brand and franchise management and uh, the communications and, um, you know, and, and there's just all of these kind of concentric circles as you widen out. Um, so I think all of these people that I get them fortunate to work with, they all have really cool jobs. But for me, the way my brain is wired and for my personal kind of what I'm excited about, what I'm passionate about, I think I have the coolest job on the lot. Um, not just cause, not cause it's easier or cause, cause, you know, I get to sit around and listen to music, but it's like, it's just, like I said earlier, it's just how my brain is wired. It's the language I speak. I, you know, I think being a musician helps, you know, I can sit down with a composer or song producer, songwriter, artist, and I can kind of speak the language. If we are trying to solve a problem, like we have something that's not quite there, it's not quite working. Um, I, I, I have produced music. I have been a music editor. I have been an engineer. I've been on different sides of what it takes to to make music. And so I think that helps me um, relate to artists better. And then they kind of feel like we are a partner more than we're the enemy. You know, like we're not, you know, like all oh, the, the business people, the studio folks, they're just you know, I don't know what the perception would be. That would be the negative version of that. But like, I think for myself and for my team, I, I think we work hard to really um, put ourselves out there as as good partners for all the different, you know, the, the, you know, all the different kinds of people that we work with on on all our projects, and and that has a lot to do with uh, with what it takes to to be successful. I think you guys have done that pretty well because like judging by uh, you know 
uh, your body of work successes like uh, it's 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 always there and something that you know uh been on my head is like okay say there's a song that you know you don't necessarily uh kind of like at first but maybe the deadline is approaching and there's no way out but you gotta put it in there has there any been uh, has it been any track that kind of grew, grew on you with time and then you're like all oh, right I put my faith in the right track in the right person and it paid off later down the line uh and you didn't initially you know well think that it would sure i mean you know to your last point i mean i think one of the you know kind of things it takes to be good at our jobs and to be successful is to like to be able to admit when you're wrong i'm not always right i'm not perfect i can think i can think of a ton of examples where maybe a song showed up and I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. But somebody else on the team was really passionate about it. And then, you know, fast forward to that song's in the movie uh, and, and it's working brilliantly. And I remember, you know, sort of like, I don't do that thing where you rewrite history and be like, that I was my idea. Like, I don't, I don't claim, you know, nobody can really singular be like, that was my idea. Like, I am singularly responsible for that thing being good in the movie. It's just, not, it's not possible. Um, but I'm also the first to um, to admit if I if my instincts were off, if I if I was wrong, if I didn't, you know, if I didn't call it exactly right. Um, and then there's also, you know, conversely, there's like that there is that pride of like I fought for something and, you know, and, and also the process of fighting for something can be really healthy. Right. Because you're you're road testing an idea. You're looking at it from all sides. If you're you're really kind of making that investment to um validate your belief in something right and so if that works out you get to look back and be like that that worked out great that worked out the way it was supposed to um you don't look back and be like oh, that, that's good because it was my idea that's that's just not a thing um but yeah i mean i, I can think of examples of both in for years of working on movies um you know, and I can, I, you know, I, and, and the criteria, the drivers of those things can be different. I remember years ago, a long time ago, working on a film where, um, the director, uh, you know, there was just a sequence, a cool sequence of a, you know, aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean and fighter jets taking off and landing. It was just like establishing a character. He's a cool kind of badass, you know, military fighter pilot kind of guy. And, um, I found a song that I thought was great. I thought lyrically it was spot on. It was about like, you know, there were lyrics that had to do with flying and being in the air and, um, you know, um, things that I just thought were, weren't too on the nose, but that's the vibe of the song is kind of rock and roll. And we were, you know, the character is kind of like a rock star in his world. There were just, there were a lot of, I felt like it checked all the boxes. That was my opinion. The director showed up. And he didn't like it. He wanted something else. And with the song that he wanted to end up with, I, I personally, I, I didn't like it at all. It, um, it, it actually was a song like about a car, right? It was talking about like, um, and not that we always try to be so on the nose. Like if you see airplanes, the song should be about a, you know, flying or if you see, you know, car, but like, I just remember, like, I didn't like the artist. I didn't like the song. I didn't like the lyrics. And Sometimes you just have a guy who's sort of like higher on the food chain going like, I don't know, I just like it, you know, and what you learn from those situations is that adage, 
that, you know, people, you know, say all the time, which is you got to choose your battles, right? You got to know when, is this the one that I'm like going to fall on my sword over? I'm going to put, I'm going to stand on the train tracks in front of the train and try to stop the train because my idea is better than that guy's idea. Or do I go in a day's work with all the things we got to do and all the problems we have to solve? Like, okay, I don't love how that turned out, but I'm going to check it off the list. You know, the song, the director likes it. it I guess it works in the picture well enough. Um, it's, it's clearable, it's affordable, you know, and, and so not my personal choice, but what am I going to do? Like threaten to quit my job if he doesn't put my song, you know, it's like what there's, there's, you know, so you just have to get realistic and smart about how to navigate those situations. Gotcha. And in hindsight, you know, uh, do you ever, uh, look back and reflect and if you do, uh, how do you utilize, uh, you know, these particular failures, like say something didn't work out the way that you wanted it to, how do you, how much, how often do you go back, reflect and see what could have been done better? And then when a similar opportunity presents itself, do you tackle it differently while, uh, you know, uh, using lessons from the past or do you always approach it as a clean slate with like, all right, we're going to do this with, you know, of like a proper white, clean whiteboard kind of style. Uh, you know, I think it would be foolish to say we're just going to try and do the same thing over and over again and expect mm. different results if something if you can really pinpoint why something didn't work. You know, it's that it's that other yeah. adage of like, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Um, but like I was also saying earlier, because no two projects are alike and, you know, and, and it's just, um, you know, we're working for the film. We're working for what's up on the screen. Um it's it's often very difficult to say this situation is exactly the same as that last situation but i mean it would be silly to say that you don't learn from your mistakes that's essentially the question you're asking is like do you learn from your mistakes and do you course correct uh going forward and so yeah of course you have to i i don't have like a really good example of 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 one of those that that comes to mind of like, oh, I, you know, we really, we screwed something up. And then the next time it came around, we referred to that screw up and then fixed it. But if you gave me a minute, I probably could come up with a ton of examples. Cause that just sounds like, that's just, you know, that sounds like a life thing is you just, you know, you, you do the best you can. You may screw up, you may make a mistake. And then Ideally, the next time you find yourself either in the exact same situation or even in a remotely close similar situation, you're not going to do, you know, if you can pinpoint what the mistakes were, you know, and, and you want to know the difference too. like, did we screw something up and we didn't do a good job? The movie's not good. The music isn't good. Or sometimes you chalk it up to like, I think that's the best movie I've ever worked on. And I think it's fantastic. And just it didn't find its audience. People didn't show up. They didn't buy their movie tickets or they didn't buy it on video. Um, and sometimes you have to chalk it up to like, better luck next time, right? Like you can't always reverse engineer, like what did we do wrong? What did, what could we have done differently? But you have to know the difference between one, one versus the other, right? Sometimes you do, yeah. sometimes you do screw up and sometimes you can really stand behind your work and get behind a project and it just it may not be successful for whatever reason that's true that's true and uh, just want to talk a little bit more about uh see you again 
because this song was kind of born out of tragic circumstances and the yeah. song itself when it came out i think audiences really connected with that which is why i mean just looking at the box office of furious seven and i think most people really love that movie fast five was where this franchise kind of like started changing and then furious seven it just took it to a whole different level but paul walker's demise and the decision to come up with uh, a track like that talk to you about uh, you know a little bit about, about that story Sure. Well, I agree with your assessment that Fast Five was a turning point in the in in the series in terms of, you know, those movies really becoming, you know, like we, we refer to them as like there's it's like it's our version of of you know a superhero movie. They're, they're you know, instead of like capes and superpowers, they have these cars, right? And and so you know it, it they are a, a, a type of superhero. All those characters, and that the franchise really did kind of grow up that way. Um, uh, 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 seven and the Paul Walker situation was obviously it was tragic and, and, um, we'd never been through something like that. And then, you know, once everyone involved in the project had an opportunity to kind of like come back to the table and talk about how the movie was going to be, uh, finished, we had to do something like uniquely challenging, which was or, you know, the, the, the story was adjusted so that you say goodbye to Brian, the character. But you also know in real life, Paul Walker, the actor playing the character, has lost his life in this tragic accident. And we wanted to, you know, finish the film and score that sequence with a song that was custom made to um, to to work. And. If, and we wanted it to be um, to speak to saying goodbye to a character, memorializing a person. Um, but you don't. But somehow you want to leave. It's at the end of the movie, and you want people to walk out feeling uplifted. You don't want people to walk out feeling depressed or feeling like they experienced the movie and then they're just walking out feeling like they've left. Um, a funeral for, for, for lack of a better expression. Um, and so, um, that was, um, possibly one of the hardest things we've ever had to do was to figure out how to navigate that. And, um, we were working closely with, um, our partners at, uh, APG and Atlantic records and, um, and the filmmakers and the songwriting, community and we were really um putting that brief out to a whole community of songwriters that we knew somewhere in this community might be someone who could um who could figure it out who could crack the code on the right vibe the right tone the right song the right lyrics um and obviously we know how it worked out you know charlie booth um he showed up with this, you know, the see you again idea and just that title and that lyric alone, you know, it sounds hopeful, right? It doesn't sound like a song about loss. It sounds like a song about hope. And, um, uh, and it was difficult, uh, you know, and, um, um, you know, there was an opportunity, um, to have, you know, it was, uh, started as a kernel of an idea with, you know, with a hook 
that Charlie showed up with. And then it kind of got built out from there. There was just something about, we would have batches of songs and we'd listen to things and audition things to picture. And so we kept coming back to that, see you again. I don't even know if the lyrics were fully formed initially. It might've just been a tune and a chord progression. And we kept, that was the one that would just started feeling sticky, right? We just kept coming back to it. And, um, and from there, it just got further and further tailored to the, to the film. Um, Wiz Khalifa, who he had done songs for previous installments of the movie. It just felt like bringing him in and having him do the verses. Um, you know, it, we talked about obviously had hours and hours of conversations about artists that would be right. And who would, who would, who would fit, like we talked about earlier, like the kinds of artists that would, that would fit the DNA of, of the project. And, but you know, it's, um, we didn't sit around saying like, we got to make a hit song, right? We, it wasn't about like, let's, let's make a song that can get on the radio. Um, but it, in terms of the pressure to deliver something that was going to work in the story, work in real life, maybe also work in the marketing campaign, which is, you know, that's a bonus when that happens, but that's not obviously in this situation, especially it's not a primary driver of where, of, of where we want to end up. But, um, you know, not unlike the happy story. Like it just, you know, it's easy to look back in hindsight and be like, and it all worked out. It was, you know, step by step. It was a, um, it was a very challenging process. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of decision makers um, on that one and just getting, you know, getting, pulling everyone to the place where there could be consensus and there could be agreement about something as subjective as, as music. Um, where everyone's opinion is valid, but how are you going to kind of put all that together and, you know, and have one idea kind of prevail? Um, so I mean, it's not a very specific answer to the, to the question about, about see you again, but, um, but that's generally how it went down. It was, it was very, it was very, very difficult. And so we're, we're proud of the success of the song. Um, but we also, you know, it, we still treat it as something really special. We're not trying to like, license it out to uh you know car commercials and you know mm. and tv sitcoms and stuff we really um try to keep it um in the realm of only having to do with um w you know with things relating to fast and furious and, and and paul walker just out of respect for what that song stands for and and how it came about and and what it means and and, and all of that so it's a really Possibly one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life and and one of the most uh, rewarding and special. When you talk, like I sense the the positive energy and like your passion for the for the entire field that you're working in, like it's contagious. So I mean, mm. whatever you've done, like hits or misses, I'm pretty sure you put all hundred percent into it. Uh, and I just want to uh, know a little bit about like how has the pandemic affected your work? And uh, where do you see things going, uh, you know, in the future? Oh, um, I mean, I think for everybody, it's been hard. And so a lot of the, you know, just kind of having to work remotely and not being able to benefit from in-person collaboration with music specifically. I mean, we make a lot of orchestral music. And so not being able to be in the studio, um, limiting who can be in the studio, you know, typically you want to have everyone there. You want to have the director or the producer and the composer and the arrangers, the orchestrators and the technicians and 
and you know that that puts a lot of people in the control room and you want to have a you might have an 80 piece orchestra in uh, on the other side of the glass in the studio and for the last almost two years um we've been able to do it but it's been really hard there were social distancing protocols um where the musicians uh, orchestral musicians had to sit a certain number of feet apart which can change the sound of an orchestra you know or choir members being separated by baffles and you, you know and it's as opposed to how a choir works where you're not only singing but you're hearing the people in front of you and around you on either side of you um and um so being having to do i mean we've made it work we've made i mean one of the first ones first large scale projects we did during the pandemic remotely was uh james newton howard's uh score for uh news of the world um the tom hanks movie and um it's a beautiful film and james did a beautiful score but at that time nobody you know we were recorded the score at abbey road in london james was here in los angeles nobody could get on a plane and travel so it was probably the first time ever that james had to kind of sit like we're doing now in front of a computer screen and do the virtual version of it and um it was hard and a lot harder than being in the, I mean, so it's, it's a part of the process where you really want a, the benefit of in-person old, old fashioned, you know, collaboration, things we used to take for granted before that, like, you just get in a room with people. Now it's like, oh, it's hard to get in a room with people. So, um, did we find a replacement of how to do it? No, I don't think, I think it's a poor facsimile of the real thing. You're not going to necessarily, I mean, because we found methods technically and, and logistically we found ways to make it work. You, you, you're not going to listen to the score and be like, I hear the difference. I hear the, the space in the room the, the, between the players and the orchestra, and it doesn't sound the same. I think, thankfully, to the credit of a lot of people involved, um, the end result ended up being excellent, but I don't think it was, um, it, was it, it wasn't a, um, uh, uh, the right process. And so I think there's a lot of talk, especially on in business and on the corporate side of things about like when this is all finally over, new ways of working, new ways of collaborating. I think that's great. I think it's great that we have these tools, but I also think that you, you have to know when it's the right tool for the right job, right? So I don't think that means we're just going to be sitting in front of screens doing everything remotely now for forever and ever. Um, I, I think, you know, we will get back to the right configuration of orchestras in the room, the right, you know, maximum number of P. I mean, we did a Jurassic World movie during the pandemic as well. And that's a that's as one of the biggest sounds that you could make for a movie. Michael Giacchino, you know, we, we ended up using multiple studios simultaneously. We had, you know, strings in in the big room at Abbey Road and then in Studio Two, you had a horn section, two conductors uh, going simultaneously and all being synchronized uh, you know, by clicks and computers. And, um, you know, it's, I don't think that I, I, you, you can't sort of generalize that as like, oh, that's better or that's worse. Um, but um, I don't think it's, it was, if given the choice, I don't think it's the best way to do it, whether it's about efficiency or, uh, you know, artistic quality or, you know, all the different uh, considerations. Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 I look forward to hopefully getting back to it soon 
where we could do it the way we've been doing it for years and years. The tried and uh, tested method, not maybe not necessarily the true method, but the tried and, tried and tested one. <laughs> for sure. But I do think yeah. it's going to change how we do business and, you know, how we have meetings and, but I think in the creative realm, there's something about, you know, kind of collaborating yeah. with people in person and being on a set right Having now, being, everyone, on, yeah. being on a set exactly. and shooting a movie is really challenging, right? You have exactly. different zones of who gets to be around who and, you know, people are testing. I mean, even just the COVID, what COVID testing adds to a film's budget, right, um, is significant. Um, and just the protocol of who gets to be where on set. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really, it's really hard. So, um, yeah. you know, I, 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 I miss it. I know a lot of people miss it. I also miss going to see shows. I miss seeing music, live, live shows in person. Um, you know, that's something that's really taken a hit during the pandemic. And that's always, you know, that's a big part of what we do as well. If we're going to keep up with artists and trends and music, you know, we want to be out there and experiencing all of that. And that's, that's, I imagine it's been not only hard for us, but really hard for, for the artists you know, and just their, their livelihood and being able to make a living, you know, performing yeah. lives, a big part of, uh, of that gig. And, you know, that's taken a hit as well. So, uh, you know, I'm optimistic. I'm grateful that we're still here. I'm optimistic about the future. Um, it'll be different. I don't, I don't think we yet know exactly all the ways and exactly how it's going to be different, but we know it's going to be uh, different than it was before. But I think certain things need to go back to the way they were to, maximize the results i agree with you here's to uh hoping for a better future uh not for sure far off i guess <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. right mike thank you so much for taking out the time to uh do this uh really means a lot i gotta thank uh maggie at universal for coordinating this and also to uh my boy ruanga for setting this up uh this has been truly enlightening and uh, i look forward to seeing uh jurassic world dominion uh hopefully soon Thank you so much for having me. It's really, it's been fun talking with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you so much, Mike. And this is John Kett Theory, folks. <laughs>